0: joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, shades. Good morning. It's good to be with you all on this 3-day weekend. My go-to joke is that, you know, we truly have the elect among us this morning. It's either that or none of you have a lake house. So, I'm going to I'm going to go with the former, that we truly have the elect among us this morning. So it's good to be with you all. You know, last week we had Dr. Smith come and preach. Were, were any of you here for that? He's still a legend, right? Incredible. Um, I heard someone say, I could listen to that man preach for hours. And I, no one's ever said that about me. Um, Laughter so, you know, the, the question after a sermon that we heard last week is who could possibly follow that. So, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all. Hey, Brad. Brad. Oh, yes, Bill. Give yourself some slack. You're still a kid. Thank you. Thank you. It's true. What a good reminder. So, th- I even feel more encouraged than I did a few seconds ago. Uh, yeah, so I think we're going to need some prayer this morning, you know, so um, w- would you join me as we, we pray for our preacher, and we, you know we pray for you all?, uh, Father, it's good to be among friends. It's good to be it's good to be part of the church with all the good and all the bad. It's good to suffer with one another. Um, and to know one another over time in such a way that you can say that you're family, not just because you feel like that's something you're supposed to say, but because it's true. And so, Father, as we gather once again as a family, I pray that you would that you would move powerfully. That's what we need this morning, is for you to move in the hearts and the minds of everyone here. I don't know what everyone's going through. We all come in different places, but our hope is, is not that Um, I'm some amazing preacher, but rather our hope is that you're present and that you will speak to us. So do so for your glory and our good. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Uh, So, you know from our reading that this morning we're going to be looking at Mark's account of the transfiguration of Jesus And this is a familiar story, I imagine, for most of us, a story that we've reflected on, that if I were to ask you, you could probably tell me the basic things that happen. But at the same time, it's also a story that for many years, um, I haven't really known what to do with. Uh, It can seem so strange and so otherworldly, a story that, because of its familiarity, uh, can become just kind of common. And I've learned that through the years, it's so often, it's the biblical text that can be so strange, can be so foreign, those biblical texts that we might skip in the reading plan, or we might read and be a little befuddled, that can be so beautiful, and can also be so challenging to us. But, uh, I was struck by what one theologian commenting on the Transfiguration said. He said that coming to and reading the Bible it isn't about confirming our ideas and experiences and going away satisfied. Rather, reading the Bible is about being challenged, called into question. Part of the point of the gospel stories is to upset our habits. To set before us something utterly different from our world. To push us into thinking about something absolutely new. We, I love this, we aren't the judges of scripture, but rather it judges us. It judges us. And so what I want us to do today is to walk through this familiar story by um, asking a few questions. Okay? The first question is, what's the context that this story's in? The second question is, what do the disciples see? The third question is, what's the disciples' reaction? And then the final question is, what do the disciples hear? And my hope is as we ask these questions and we get into the text, that by the Spirit we're given what I think you and I need most this morning, and that is faith and assurance in Jesus Christ. No matter where we're at this morning, that is what we need desperately, faith and assurance. So if you have your Bible, if you haven't turned there yet, you can. It's Mark 9. We're going to be walking through the text First question: What's the context? Look at chapter nine, verse two, with me. And after, did I just hear Siri? Did I just, <laughs> did I just break into someone's phone? By Siri wants to hear what the word is this morning. So we actually talked about recently uh, doing an, an episode of Shay's Midweek about AI. So that could be fun. That was random. Okay. (laughs) Chapter 2. I'm just giving you time to get there. Don't you hate it when they start reading the text and you're not there yet? Okay. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, let's stop there. So the first question that I have that I imagine is the question that you have is, why did Mark right after six days? Actually, I imagine that none of you had that question, right, as you read the text. Um, But it's a good question because uh, Mark rarely uses timestamps in his gospel. Um, I think he might do so maybe like only one other time. And so the fact that he puts after six days is significant. He's trying to, to show us something. So the question is, what is he trying to show us, right? Well, I think two things, right? The first thing, as we ask, what is the context, is we have to talk about the scriptural context. Right? Um, and I think, and a lot of people think, that as we head into the transfiguration, with all of its strangeness, uh, Mark wants us to have Exodus 24 on the forefront of our minds, um, this is Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. Right? He wants that to be on the forefront of our minds. Look at Exodus 24, 16, in light of what I just said. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for how long? Six days. Okay. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Right? So immediately as we're coming into this story... Um, our imaginations need to be captured by Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. Right? That's where our heads need to be. Um, in the biblical story, uh, mountains often signify two things one, they, they signify um, progress in God's covenantal story. Uh, progress in God's story of redemption. Um, secondly, on mountains there are often um, theophanies. Right? This is your fun word to use on Mondays. you're grilling out. Theophany. Right? Um, what's a theophany? Right? It's a way to make yourself sound smart. No. Um, a theophany is a revelation of God to humankind. Right? Um, and often that occurs where? On mountains, So what we're going to see here is that the transfiguration, right, um, this encounter on the mountain, um, all the other mountain encounters in scripture kind of pave the way and are pointing to this moment, to this mountain, into another hill called Golgotha, right? A revelation of God to humankind. That's the first part of the scriptural context. What's the second part? Um, The second part uh, connects, the after six days, it connects it to what's been happening in Mark's gospel. All right? And I think this is so important if we want to understand what's going on with the transfiguration. Um, Because what's just happened in Mark's gospel? Well, let's back up a little bit. In, in, In Mark's gospel... Jesus uh, has been killing it, right? Uh, That's an expression, not literally. Um, He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. He's forgiven sins. He's stilled the storm. He's walked on water. He's miraculously fed large crowds, right? He's been doing all these things. And so in chapter eight, right before our text, Jesus asks Peter a famous question. We all know what's that question. Who do you say that I am? Peter, what's Peter's response? Right? In light of everything that Peter has witnessed, right? Speaking for the disciples, he says, "You are the Christ, the Messiah." And Peter means that you are the expected King of Israel, the new David, the one we've been waiting for, right? So Peter is is pumped, right? He's pumped, but he's about to be really confused. Because what does Jesus say next? He says this. It says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, uh, row, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And then the confusion continues. Why? Because Jesus says what? the words we all know if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up what his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life would lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it right so the disciples are just like what <laughs> um we, we've been we've been waiting for rescue we've been We've been waiting for a king, and we've got a vision of a king that's going to rescue us from our oppressors, that's going to remove the suffering that we've been uh, experiencing, that's going to bring vindication. And then Jesus says these words. He's going to suffer. He's going to be killed. The disciples say, you're going to have to take up your cross. And where are the disciples at this point? They are confused at the words of Jesus. You're kind of in a little place of just despair. What? And my question for you this morning is, have you been there? Are you there? Right? We have a perspective that disciples do not. Right? Um, but nonetheless, to be a disciple of Jesus is at times to look at him and say, Jesus, why did you say that? Jesus what are you doing? Jesus, why this way? The road to discipleship is a road that is filled with doubts and confusion and uncertainty and a wrestling with the words of Jesus, right? I can remember going into seminary thinking, I'm going to get all the answers. And I remember leaving seminary saying, I have so many more questions, right? That's not odd. That's not unusual. That's called being a disciple of Jesus Christ, right? To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be filled, and maybe some of you are here this morning, it's to be filled with moments where you say, I didn't think my life was going to look like this, right? Um, Jesus, as a teenager, I I kissed dating goodbye, you know? Some of you read the book. Don't act like you didn't, right? I did all the right things. I followed you, and this season of singleness is way longer than I thought, right? Um, Jesus, I've I've gotten really involved in the church. I've really pushed in. I serve. I'm here. I I show up. And yet this sense of community and belonging that I hear everyone else talking about and I hear everyone experiencing, I'm not experiencing. Right? I I didn't think that following you was going to feel like this. You know, Jesus, in, in my career and decisions, I've done things to follow you, but it looks like those that are doing things their own way are prospering. And it's hard, right? Jesus, I, I raised my kids in the faith. I did everything that I thought I was supposed to do. I was there for them. I love them. I, I serve them. And, and then they've, they've left you. And it feels like they left me as well. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be in these moments of despair and confusion, right? And so, to set the context, Peter, James, and John ascend the mountain in a place of confusion, in a place of despair, okay? That takes us to the second question, What did they see when they get there? What did they see? Look at the second part of verse 2 with me. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Okay, so a few things going on. Um, first, what does it mean that he was transfigured? Right? Um, the word was transfigured is the Greek word metamorpho. It, metamorphosis, It's yeah, kind of where we get that. It's just a little fa- fun side thing there. Um, but it gets at the idea of what's going on, right? It's, it's to change in form. Uh, and interestingly, the verb is only used four times in the New, New Testament. It's used here, it's used in Matthew's account of the transfiguration, and then it's used, where else? Twice by Paul to talk about the believer being transformed into the image of Christ after his likeness. Right? That's interesting. There's something there. But how does Mark describe this transfigured state? What does he say? He says his clothing became... Dazzling, brilliantly white, like glittering. Excuse me, that's not what he said. He said his clothes became radiant, intensely white, right? Brilliantly white. I'm describing it like glittering metal or stars. Um, I thought it was interesting is it's like no one on earth could bleach them. You know, I started thinking about Clorox, and then I was like, did they have laundry mats back then? And I was like, wow, I guess it makes sense that even back then, no one wanted to do laundry, right? Um, but there would have been like a clothing clothing specialist that you would have gone to. So that's where you know that's kind of coming from. Um, not even the laundromat, right, can get the clothes this white. Um, it brings to mind some of this imagery. It brings to mind Psalm 104. It says this, and this is worth pondering this morning. God wears light as a garment. He wears light as a garment. Luke's account gives some different details. It doesn't mean they're in competition with one another. Right? Luke says that um, the appearance of his face changed. That takes us back to where? Right back to Sinai. Right? Moses. Uh, Matthew's account said his face shone like the sun. Yeah. So here is the disciples behold Jesus in his transfigured state right? What do they see? Well, they see Jesus' glory, but there's two aspects of his glory that I want us to focus on as we think about what they saw, right? Here's our second fun word for the day um, that you can use tomorrow, the cookout. The disciples saw Jesus' parousia glory, his parousia glory, the glory of his second coming, his second coming glory. Now, why do I say that? Well, I've been talking about the context a lot, right? Which I know you guys are so excited about. Um, But it's important uh, because in, in the literal verses right before the transfiguration, what does Jesus say? Jesus looks at his disciples and he says something that's another kind of strange verse, right? Jesus just seems to keep doing this. He says, truly I say to you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom after it has come with power, right? Okay, so that's kind of confusing because it seems like some of the disciples before they die are going to experience Christ and his glorious return. So what's going on, right? Well, it's a gif- difficult text, but um, most scholars will say that Jesus here, and I think they're right, is talking about what's about to happen with the transfiguration, Okay and this is where I get my title from, Um, the disciples are about to see on the Mount of Transfiguration a divine preview of Jesus in his second coming, his glorious return. That's what they're witnessing, right? Um, And that's where I want our hearts and our imagination to go to this morning. Because when we are in a place of confusion in discipleship, when we are in a place of despair, when we are in a place of suffering, when we are in a place where we look at Jesus and we say, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't get it. What we need more than anything is not clever answers, right? Is not a quick response, is not cliches. Rather, we need to see Jesus as he is in glory, We need to see Jesus, right, as he will be when he returns. Revelation depicts him returning as a triumphant warrior king and a judge. See, there will be no doubts on that day. This is what the disciples need to see. The second, what's the second aspect? That the disciples need to see, and you and I need to see this morning. It's Jesus's divine glory. So the second question that comes in this section that I think you would probably ask if you read it, or kind of doing a study on it, would be, what the heck are Moses and Elijah doing here? Right? Why them? Why these two figures? Um, and this is a question that has Puzzled Interpreters, and they're actually uh, going through it. I, I think there are eight different interpretations. Isn't that fun, right? I thought this morning I would go through each one slowly and painfully, um, that we would all enjoy that. Eight different interpretations, and I, I think, and you know you're getting me this morning, um, you know, my tendency with some of these things is I think, you know, there's probably a, a piece of everything going on here. You know, it would make sense that there's multiple layers to the scriptures, right? Um, if there can be multiple layers in a Terence Malick or a Scorsese or, you know, whatever, if it can, there can be multiple layers in a film, I think that can happen with the scriptures, right? Um, that reference just, you know, came off the top of my head. I don't know if it's helpful. But I think you see what I'm getting at. But what I want to focus on is this. You know, I I think at the forefront is the fact that both Moses and Elijah encountered God on a mountain and they longed to see him. They longed to see his face. God told Moses what? That he could not see the glory of his face. And what did Elijah do? Elijah did what? He covered his face with a cloth, right? Because if they were to see God face to face, They would die, right? So what's going on? Well, here are Moses and Elijah all these years later. And finally, they are getting what they long for. They are witnessing, they are staring at the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. As they look upon the face of Jesus, they are looking upon the face of God. They finally get to see what they want. God on the mountain. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. But Jesus has made him known. Colossians 1.15, he is what? The image of the invisible God. I love what the theologian John Webster says about the glory of Jesus. It's beautiful. He says, Jesus is radiant with the glory of God. He's not just a pointer to God. He's not just a messenger telling us something about God. He's not just a prophet calling us to respond to God. Rather, in seeing him, we see God. In his acts, we see God's acts. In his words, we hear God's words. He is God's presence. And so he is God's glory. Jesus is not like a mirror reflecting a light from outside. He is himself the glory, the one who is the radiance of God, God from God, we say in the creed, light from light, true God from true God. This is the one who our hearts have been waiting for. This is the glory that you and I our entire life have been looking for in people, and in created things, and in tasks, and in achievements, and here it is. And as we go forward, on the hard, and the confusing, and then at times tiring path of discipleship, this is the glory we need to see, and have our affection served by this morning. So, what's the disciples' response? Alright, that's the next question that I said I wanted to ask What's the disciples' response? Look at verse 5. You still with me this morning? Yeah. Verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Mark's little, you know, narrative addition here. Um, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. (laughs) You know, they're freaking out. Um, So what's going on with Peter? You know, once again, commentators love to speculate. I do too. You know, some say that, okay, Peter's, he's trying to provide a shrine or place of honor for these guests. He's trying to be hospitable, right? He's... um, He's expecting that they might be there a while. And that's a really interesting thought because I'd never thought about that with the transfiguration. Peter could think this was permanent, right? Oh, finally, right? The glory of Jesus, here it is. Everyone's going to see it. People have been doubting, right? People have been questioning. He said some weird stuff. We're gonna kind of excuse that, but like, boom, okay, Jesus, let's do this, you know? That's what Peter could be thinking. We're going to be here a while. Might even get hot in the morning. Let's get some tents. You know, who knows? Um, Some will see a connection to the Feast of Tabernacles, but here's the thing: I I think Mark's Mark's note is significant because, as much as you know, we might want to, and as much as I might want to psychoanalyze Peter, um, Mark turns us away from the speculation by pointing to the fact that they were terrified. That they were terrified. Um, and the point here is something, once again, worth meditating on, and that's the fact that when Jesus comes in his glorious return, it will be terrifying. It will be terrifying, right? Um, just to let you guys in, you know, anytime. I do a Lord of the Rings illustration. I always feel insecure on the inside for two reasons. One, I'm an evangelical pastor. It's like a very kind of evangelical pastor thing to do, quote Lord of the Rings. You know, the second thing is that I'm not a nerd when it comes to Lord of the Rings. And so when I've done it in the past, normally someone from the congregation, one of you all, um, comes up and corrects me, you know, and it's like, You know, you said orc, technically it's not an orc, it's another, anyway, we don't have time, you know, that normally happens. So I'm just going ahead and putting that out on the table, these two things, to hopefully save face um, and, you know, deal with some of the sermon hangover I have afterwards. So in the film adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, you know, the two towers, there comes a point where the people of Rohan are trapped in the fortress of Helm's Deep, right? And they are surrounded by an orc army, right? I I don't know if you can picture the the scene, The orcs come in the night. It's it's an absolutely terrifying scene as the soldiers wait on the wall and the masses come. Um, And so when the morning comes, they're absolutely trapped, they're done. Um, Some of them just ride out as a last attempt at glory, right? Knowing that their fate is sealed. And then right when all else seem hopeless, what happens? Gandalf shows up over the hill on a white horse. Hello? You know, I wonder where you got that from. In a white cloak shining, and he is followed by an army. And as an army storms down the hill, can you visualize it? You know, uh, as the army storms down the hill, the orcs tremble in fear. And then, ultimately, they disperse and they run away. And what's so powerful about that scene, besides the way that it's shot and the orchestral music in the background, you know, da-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na, that, you know, what's so powerful about it is the fact that this army in white, they are terrifying. It is a terrifying scene as the orcs stand there But the terror quickly turns into hope and joy because the army is for the good guys. The army is coming to rescue the good guys. The army is there to fight for them. And this is the vision of the glory and the fear of the Lord that I so desperately want to be recovered in the church. Sometimes when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we try to you know, we try to sidestep it a little bit, but I think the best thing for you and me is we're disciples of Jesus Christ in this world with all of its suffering and all of our doubt and all of our confusion is to have a picture of Jesus that leaves us terrified. A vision of Jesus that leaves us terrified and at the exact same time leaves us hopeful. Why? Because that vision is the vision that makes all other fears, the fears of the orc army that can seem so insane, take their rightful place. Right. This is what our hearts have been longing for. Okay, so the last question that I have this morning is what did they hear? All right, we talked about the context what they saw, how the disciples reacted. What did they hear? Look at verse seven and eight with me. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Okay, so so what did they hear? Well, we have that divine voice that echoes the baptismal voice, Jesus' baptism, right? Son of God is a title for the Messiah, for God's vice-regent, his agent of redemption, but it's certainly more here. It's certainly expressing the unique relationship with the Son of the Father. And I love this. Um, what's also different from the baptismal pronouncement is the fact that um, it's in the third person. This is. Why do I love that? right? Because um, where Jesus' baptism was a divine approval and commissioning for Jesus himself, here, this is for the benefit of the disciples. Do you see that? This is my Son, it's directed at them, right? um, It's for the benefit of the disciples who need courage and assurance to take up their cross, to face everything that they're about to. And then what does the voice say next after it says who Jesus is? Listen to him. Listen to him. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be something that you and I probably aren't very good at, a listener, right? Listen to him when he talks about his death and resurrection. Listen to him when he talks about taking up his cross. Listen to him when he says, come follow me. Listen to him when he talks about the forgiveness of sins. Listen to him when he says that your sufferings are only temporary. Listen to him when he talks about coming in glory. Listen to him when he talks about your reward and vindication. Listen. To be a disciple is to listen, an intense listening a listening that's straining. When we come together on Sunday morning, we come to listen. When we, when we pray, we speak, yes, but don't forget we also pray so that we might listen. We read the scriptures so we might listen. We go in tears before God so we might pour out our hearts before him, yes, but that we might also listen. So this is nothing new, but it is a check-in. With all the voices that we are listening to, how are you listening to the voice of Jesus? Is that a way that you could describe your life? Someone who listens day in and day out to the words of Jesus? If not, what might you need to do? I've been asking myself that. Let me close with this. Um, as I was writing the sermon, I kept coming back to to Peter's words um, again and again, and especially when he says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. And I was just thinking, what must that experience have been like for Peter? You know? Um, Is it, I say I'm going to psychoanalyze Peter, which is exactly what I said don't do. So clearly don't listen to anything I've said. Um, But I, I just wonder, you know, Peter just wants to stay here, right? And as I began thinking about that, I thought, man, that's me. I just want to stay on top of the mountain with Jesus. Can anyone else relate to that? I want to stay with him, removed from the suffering, (laughs) removed from the hardships, removed from the calls to discipleship, removed from having to deal with you all. No, it's a joke. Partially. No, it's a joke. I I want to be removed from all that, right? What I want when it comes to my relationship with God is a a nirvana kind of self-realized, removed from everything kind of experience, right? Does anybody else want that? Yeah, that's what I want more than anything. But what does Jesus do? He takes the disciples back down the mountain. Revealing what? That the path to glory, the path path that we've talked about must go through the cross. If it's true for Jesus, it's true for you and me. And so I would love nothing more than to stay in here, to stay with you all, to worship, to be encouraged, to pray for one another, to feel and experience the presence of God in this place, the place where heaven and earth meet, removed from all the crap that's out there. But each week we say our benediction and we go back into it. We go back down the mountain. And guess what? As we head into this week, even with Monday off, sometimes that can make it worse, you know? Even with Monday off, we go back into it and we face everything that we have to face. You know? We face the suffering. I don't know what that's gonna be for you, but I know it's gonna be something, all right? To be a disciple is to be called into the mess, to be called into the crap, to be called into the confusion, to be called into the difficulty, to be called into the suffering, to be called into the pain, and not to flee from it, but to go head into it. That's what Jesus is calling the disciples. And how the heck can little old me, right? I know my weaknesses, I know my failings, I know my fears, I know my uncertainties, I know myself pretty darn well, and I am not the type of person that is ready to run headlong into that. Most of the time, I'm running in the opposite freaking direction, right? How can I do that? I can only do so because I do not do it alone. I go in weakness. I go being tired. I go being at my end. I go being imperfect, and you do too, but we go headlong into it because we know that the war has been won and that it's only a matter of time. It is only a matter of time until the divine preview is the divine reality for all of us. And the scriptures say we will be like him. Right? That's the glory. That's worth thinking about in light of the ascension. That's the glory for us. And so we go and we say, you know, Satan, what do you have for us this week? suffering, what do you have for me this week? Pain, brokenness, what do you have this week? I'm ready for it. Because you cannot defeat the victor, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.